I think transmaterial welding is a practice of hope in a very honest way. It's uh, recognizing that the world is in a terrible state. We can't thingify things. We can't separate ourselves out from the world. But at the same time, we have to take on board that we have responsibilities and choices. Um, and from a social constructionist point of view in particular, we have to think who's involved in this conversation. is Positivity Strategist, and I'm the host, Robin stratton Kessel. This season five is an exciting collaboration with the Taos Institute. Our inquiry for the season is Constructionist Practices as Social Innovation. Our special guests are Taos Institute Associates, who've contributed chapters to the SAGE Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice. This episode is a conversation with two women who've co-authored a chapter in the handbook, Dr. Gail Simon and Dr. Leah Salter. Gail, you're English, an academic, leading a professional doctorate program in systemic practitioner research at the University of Bedfordshire in the UK, and you're editor of the online dialectic journal, Murmurations, and you do other very important professional work and fun things in your spare time, <laughs> like watching box sets with your partner, going for long walks and making fires on very cold nights. So my first question to you, Gail, is what box sets can you recommend? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I, I think generally I, I have enjoyed the Scandinavian noir box sets. They're very engaging, but you have to be able to get beyond the first episode, which always shows the quite grim, graphic, gory details. Mm. And I'm, I'm not very good at, at being frightened. I'm really terrible at anything scary. So once I get beyond that, then I'm into the drama, the mystery, the characters, the scenery, and mm. I'm carried away with all of that. Yes, I have to say I've been watching two Norwegian shows, which are amazing, and don't ask me to say what their names are. <laughs> well, another one I like, actually, you said Norwegian, is, is Dag, D-A-G. Uh -huh. And I don't know if it's on anywhere at the moment, but it's about a really badly behaved relationship therapist. That appeals to me enormously. It's very funny and very moving. Oh, right. Do you watch it in Norwegian or do you have subtitles? And subtitles? Yeah, I snacker lit norsk, but I don't really speak Norwegian, so I, <laughs> I watch with subtitles. Uh, okay, yeah, I like it too. Okay. And so, Leah, I want to welcome you as well. You're Welsh, living in South Wales, and I understand that you're working with the National Health Service, the NHS in Wales. You're also supervising doctoral students and you continue your therapy practice. Um, you write for publications, including murmurations, and your research interests include systemic practice-based research, women's well-being, parental mental health, working with groups and communities, narrative inquiry, and more. So my question to you is, do you have any spare time? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, that's a good question too. Um, I'm 
slightly taken aback by Gail's Norwegian. So um, I'm on the back foot. Um, it's interesting how, you know, you think you know someone and then you learn something new. So I had no idea that Gail had this skill. <laughs> um, but yeah, I yes, so I do have some spare time. And um, my spare time is usually taken up with uh, walking along the coast. Mm. That's probably my favourite activity. I live right on the coast and um, my partner's a surfer and we have a camper van and we spend a lot of time um, enjoying the um, the Welsh coastline, the British coastline, and uh, you know when we can further afield as well. Beautiful, yeah. Well, I have that in common with you too. I absolutely oh. love the outdoors, and the coastlines are very appealing to me. Yeah. Ah, so, doctors Leah and Gail, in your chapter, you offer us that transmaterial worlding evokes ecological and contextual curiosity and invites questions that pay attention to relational affect involving a more than human relating and a more than local focus. So I would love to jump straight in and I think it'd be very lovely and most helpful if you talk to each other about this transmaterial worlding. Like, you know, how do you begin to explain this way of being and doing in the world? I don't know if I have the language that I'm describing it well. And so a way of being and doing and, and maybe it's, you know, for those who are hearing the term for the first time, both if you could unpack transmaterial and then worlding and then the combination of the two. Yeah, it might be worth starting in a slightly different place because you've probably heard, I guess lots of people have heard that this era we're now living in is called the Anthropocene, was been named as such. Um, That uh, paleontologists are saying, we can fairly safely say that human beings have tipped the balance in uh, our shaping of the world. We're not just living in it, on it, we've actually shaped it and we've quite possibly a lot of people say this is a, a, a certainty we're on the course to destroy the planet we're living on um such is the power of being human and one of the things that has been preoccupying not just uh Leah and me but lots of people both in academia and in the wider world. I mean, school children are perfectly knowledgeable in understanding that humans can't deceive themselves into thinking they can control their environment, um, that we can't see ourselves as top of some intellectual pile of uh, beings in the world, of creatures, whether it's uh, white, male, heterosexual, strong, uh, blonde, uh, cool, all these kind of stereotypes of what apparently has most currency, most uh, status, that we can't see one group of people as superior to another over gender, over gender identity, over color, over race and ethnicity, over religion and so on. But more than that, that we need to have more respect for not only other creatures that are not human creatures, but that we need to see other parts of our planet as alive. Mm. And not only that, but as entitled to have a say. 
So transmaterial worlding is an invitation to think who should we be inviting to the table to have a voice and say what they know and for the rest of us to find ways of listening with an open heart, an open mind, really, really listening respectfully and being prepared to allow ourselves to be changed by what comes back at us. Yeah, I was just thinking, I'm, I'm sort of slightly preoccupied because I'm sat here with my um, cat who's just come back from, from the vets from having a little operation and she's really cross with me and she can't decide whether she's more, more cross with me or more kind of unsettled with herself and she's really, she's really unhappy. And, you know, and it would be very easy for me to, to kind of ignore that context or... Um, you know, just be in this moment and, and if you like, to um, give precedent to the, to the human interaction that we're engaged with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I'm also mindful of the non-human kind of context of our conversation and also, you know, the setting up of the technology, that's part of this conversation. So the whole kind of, you know, the whole context is, is, uh, is at least partially in view. And at least you know for part of the time, but of course we move between those different um, uh, perspectives, those different viewpoints. And so there might be times where I'm more preoccupied with my cat, where I'm more preoccupied with whether my computer is working okay, or whether I'm more engaged in um, this this human to human interaction that we're not just with ourselves, but with other people who are listening with us. But you know the point is, you know, all of these things are part of um, our ecology. And, well, not just a part of we, you know, a part of suggests that we're we're all living separately uh, from each other and from uh, ecology. But we are, you know, we are making of ecology. Mm. Yeah, and so it's this um, notion of we are co-inhabitors of this world. And so, may I move to the term worlding? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Now, I understand this term worlding, we owe to Karen Barrad, who in 2007 wrote the book Meeting the Universe Halfway, Quantum Physics and the Entanglement of Matter and Meaning. So please speak to the worlding piece of transmaterial worlding. I think transmaterial is easier for people to understand because everybody understands that humans do try and put themselves at the top of the control pile mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and and that the and that we're starting to realize that maybe we should have been listening to either what other people have been telling us is going wrong and we've ignored their voices when i say we i'm really am grouping everybody together and not everybody would say that they've been ignoring those voices but um the worlding the worlding side of things it's a development on from social construction transmaterial mm-hmm. worlding firstly Social construction, when it first came on the scene, as it were, with some through a number of people, um, but certainly names familiar in the Taos Institute would be um, Sheila McNamee, mm-hmm. Harleen Anderson, and Harold Gulishian's absolutely stunning pivotal paper, mm-hmm. Human Systems as Linguistic Systems. I think that was 1988. If anybody hasn't read mm-hmm. it, you must read it. Why? 
why just look at quotes from that paper, read the whole thing. Mm. It was really a, the most important paper of its era in terms of helping family therapists mm. understand how they could rethink problems in families or in systems generally between people. And what, what uh, transmaterial worlding is trying to do, oh, sorry, I'll stay with social construction because that's important. The, the contribution of social construction, um, well, there are many contributions, but the primary ones have been to help people understand that we are making our worlds with each other through the language we're using, mm. that how we say things, the words we use, the context in which we feel we can or can't speak, which voices are heard, which voices aren't heard. Social construction enabled us to foreground power relations and see that some voices get to describe things um, and to pin them down into certain uh, understandings, which might not be shared. So some groups of people, some cultures might have dominated what gets described, what gets attributed um, certain characteristics, what's seen as important and what isn't and who isn't mm. and which texts get backgrounded or not just lost, lost is often too innocent a term, mm. destroyed, erased. Mm. Same mm. with peoples, of course. And, you know, uh, many countries around the world where entire peoples have been erased. Mm. So what we've tried to do with social construction is say, actually, we do more than live in language. We actually live in language and through language, but also in a material world. We live in a, a world of fabric of many living creatures and living entities. Um, we live in a material world where there are power relations, not only between humans, but between humans and other parts of the planet, other things that grow, that have changed, have knowledge, other peoples that have had knowledge mm -hmm. that may or may not be allowed uh, into the table. So we've, we've, we've reframed social, not just to include humans, but we've extended it to include non-human creatures, animals, life, flora and fauna, but also to think about things that are often considered dead, inanimate. And we've challenged that in our paper. We've written about how uh, and built on the work of people like Jane Bennett and uh, Chen. And we've said, you, you can't really consider something like a rock as dead material when actually it's taken millions of years to become the form it is mm -hmm. and is in the process still of changing, perhaps in a different time frame. But that doesn't mean it's not alive in some ways mm -hmm. and giving life and part of life and part of what we build our lives on. So the, 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 the worlding process is how we make meaning and more than that, how we're constantly being changed by trying to understand, by trying to formulate words and wisdom and knowledge that we're always in the process of something like learning, becoming, becoming learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I was thinking kind of story and becoming, becoming and story and um, similarly, and, and thinking, um, um, you know, the paper that, that Gail mentioned there, um, uh, you know, as human systems as linguistic systems, and I guess, you know, part of what we're doing with, with this chapter is kind of extending the idea of linguistics 
you know, extending uh, what we mean by communication and extending what we mean by, um, uh, by, by who or what has a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the who, you know, or what is, is a really kind of crucial uh, part of that. And I was thinking, you know, the example that we use in the chapter um, around Uluru um, in, in Australia, I was talking with a group of students, uh, a group of um, doctoral students just this week about their experience of reading uh, the chapter. And one of the women was saying to me that she, you know, the, the example of Uluru, she just found chilling. Mm. Um, you know, and that word really struck me. Uluru, formerly known as Ayers Rock, that kind of classic iconic image yeah. that uh, tourists would aim to visit if they were traveling through the Australian outback mm. has had, um, is it some kind of preservation order put on yeah. it? And the land around it, the rock itself and the land around it recognized as a sacred sacred space of a particular Aboriginal group. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of that group of people, but that it's no longer simply a tourist attraction where people can go and climb it. And I think one of the things you're referring to, that kind of last minute rush of climbers who frankly yeah. couldn't have given the toss about the fact it was a holy mm-hmm. space, their, their pilgrimage, and that's a, a, maybe a far too generous a term, was to quickly go and climb it before the gates were put up and people said you can't climb it anymore. And that is that what people were finding shocking? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And the, the example of Uluru with that example, people were experiencing as uh, chilling, but like a, a, a an alarm call, a wake up call. And, and, and the response, the feedback that I was getting from people, you know, reminded me of um, how many young people at the moment, but, you know, the, the person who springs to mind is Greta Thunberg, who is, you know, kind of saying that she wants people to be alarmed. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, I think there's, you know, there's been a lot of debate around whether it's uh, unhealthy for young people to be exposed to, um, to these kinds of arguments and whether young people are equipped to deal with the, the information that's being presented to them um, and whether we're creating uh, you know, something that's now been coined as uh, eco-anxiety. Whereas I think uh, a lot of young people, uh, you know, the message that they are given is, yes, I am alarmed, but I, I choose to be alarmed. Mm-hmm. I take my alarm seriously and I take my responsibility to my alarm seriously. And actually what I want you to do as an adult is not protect me from the alarm but for you to take the alarm seriously don't just don't just try and protect me from this um don't diagnose me and treat me and you know create a whole diagnostic criteria around what's going on but you know let's do something about this we're we're at a very worrying tipping point in um public health discourses where there is Uh, a lot of attention being given to something called eco-anxiety as though it's some kind of individualized Mm -hmm. um, health problem. And I read in the papers yesterday about a nine-year-old girl who is striking on Fridays outside her school. Apparently nobody else wants to join in or their parents won't let them. The uh, paper reported how several children are doing this on their own outside school because for whatever reason, other pupils are not joining in. In places, many places they are, um, in numbers. 
but they've started a, a kind of some kind of uh, I don't know if it's an online group or other point of connection where people who are striking on their own can connect with each other and not feel isolated and be able to sustain each other across distance. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, so we're at a tipping point in terms of the adult run mental health services and social services starting to reinforce and undermine a children's movement, actually a worldwide movement, mm -hmm. um, in which people are saying, I am anxious mm -hmm. and there's a good reason for it. Yeah. I'm not illogical. I don't have a phobia. There are grounds for my discomfort and I invite you to feel unsettled too. Um, this is a great intervention by young people. Absolutely. It's, it's being an activist very early on. And it's yeah. almost, it illustrates for me that we can't throw our arms up in the air and roll our eyes and say, uh, I don't know what to do. Or, you know, people are actually taking action. So, I mean, you talk about the practical and the ethical options that when we look at transmaterial worlding as an inquiry, that opens up for us, right? It's this worldview that the Taos Institute seeks to bring into practice through the lens of social construction. Here is Dawn Dole, the Executive Director. We all search for ways to live a meaningful life. At the Taos Institute, we believe meaning can be found through sharing personal histories with others. Social constructionist practices support this form of discovery. Visit taosinstitute.net to find out more. Returning now to my conversation with Gail and Leah, and it's such a wonderful example how we need new words, new language to be able to deal with some of the issues that we have today that we didn't have before. And transmaterial worlding is just one example. So I'm wondering if this would work right now, that you could illustrate transmaterial worlding as a form of inquiry when it comes to what we're talking about now, what's happening on planet Earth in relationship to climate, you know, glaciers melting, floods occurring, highest temperatures on record being recorded, droughts. And you talked about Uluru in Australia. Um, and I have a situation, you know, that's been occurring in Australia. It's very close to my yeah. heart. And that's a massive Australian bushfires. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, how might you, through this perspective, through this lens, social construction and the transmaterial worlding, reframe of it or addition to it, complement to it, how might you engage in that kind of inquiry, like a case for research or inquiry, what could happen if you did that? How would you do that? If you had a student who said, I really want to go in and do some research on this and how we might kind of come up with some solutions if that's possible, how might you begin that kind of inquiry? I think one of the important things uh, in thinking about researcher positions and the ethics of researcher positions is that researchers need to be often coming from inside of a locality. They need to be members of a community and not parachuted in some kind of academic expert who's interested in this situation. Mm -hmm. Those uh, academics who are parachuted in actually can be quite useful as what Vicky Reynolds calls 
fluid and imperfect allies. It's a great expression, fluid and imperfect allies. And we can all be that. We can all be a fluid and imperfect ally in different situations. We probably are on a daily or weekly basis. But in a situation like this, um, this terrible, terrible tragedy that continues to unfold um, with the American bushfires, you would want to think who, what knowledges are around and who holds those knowledges. And the by Australian who, bushfires we're talking about. I mean, yes, they happened in California too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and of course, there's the, uh, uh, the burning of the Amazon forest mm-hmm, as well. Absolutely, And yep. um, the rainforest, um, which is happening under different circumstances. Um, but in a sense, all man-made. Uh, but the question, who and who what, should we be involving in this inquiry is an important mm-hmm. question. Who is doing the inviting? And if I'm invited to do some uh, uh, inquiry into not only how the bushfires wherever or the forest fires started and how they continue, who, how would I know who to invite? So we need to find out from a number of different people and we need to do different kinds of listening. When I was running a workshop the other week on transmaterial welding, we invited people to enact different parts of the forest from the canopy to the tree, to the forest floor, to the uh, roots of the trees, to the wind passing through, to the smoke passing through, to the smoke catching some of the dry Mm -hmm. leaves or turning things dry and so on, to the river that had been altered Mm -hmm. by, uh, in its course, by various other human interferences. So when people were doing these uh, what Harleen Anderson would have called an as-if exercise, mm-hmm. doing these as-if exercises, speaking in the first person as if they are different parts of a, a forest, they have different, develop different awareness. They develop different consciousness and a, different, and a heightened sense of responsibility for that environment. Furthermore, we also need to go further than as-if exercises because humans do have a limit to their imagination. We can't always imagine what we don't know. Um, We don't actually know what it's like to be a tree or a leaf. We can only imagine it. There are other people to think about and other knowledges. Maybe we need to look at paintings, paintings of forests. Maybe we need to look at old photos. Maybe we need to read other manuscripts. Maybe we need to talk with people who are now living... Uh, have been relocated, uh, taken out of what was their family's historical heritage and environment and relocated into camps somewhere or other places. And to listen to what stories and narratives they have to tell that contain all kinds of rich knowledge about how forests work, about how rain works, um, about how the seasons work. And we also need to be talking to current professionals and local members of the community. In a sense, most forms of activism are a form of research and most forms of research need to be a form of activism. Mm-hmm. But we need to understand how people are protecting the planet, how people are helping others, whether as family therapists or as uh, environmental activists. What mm-hmm. is it that people are doing 
that's maybe a hidden knowledge, not necessarily measurable, not necessarily uh, quantifiable in terms of tables and uh, quantitative data, but that is very mm. hidden, very complex relational yeah. activities that maybe or, go on out of sight. Yeah, and out of sight, it, what are the stories from the culture that perhaps have been marginalised or discounted or lost? So, you know, what else can we surface if we start to make this inquiry into thinking, well, who has something to contribute to this situation, to this story and to potential futures? So, Leo, you, um, in your chapter, um, and the chapter is entitled Transmaterial Worlding as Inquiry, you offer some research questions. And so I wondered if you would you know, talk to those questions. Can I just uh, add something to the previous conversation? Um, uh, the as-if exercise. So the as-if exercise as you know, be, becoming a tree or the roots of the tree, etc. And, you know, when Gail was talking, I was thinking, um, I, so my first degree was in... Uh, drama or part of my degree was in drama and I spent a lot of time um being a tree it's kind of like a, it's like, a, like an, an everyday like warm-up exercise to you know to kind of be a tree for at least half an hour of your kind of um drama class each day but one of the most profound experiences um I have many years later was in a body psychotherapy training session mm-hmm. where I was um, invited to be an electricity pylon Ooh. Now, this is a much harder task because you're, you know, you're entering something that we, that we you know, think of as, you know, as, as uh, or I would think of. And certainly at the time when I was doing this, I would have seen this as a, um, something that's kind of intrusive into my landscape. Um, something that is, you know, uh, kind of man-made and something quite ugly, something kind of, you know, unpalatable you know, often something that people don't want in their backyards. Um, and, uh, but it had the most profound effect because I was, I made myself or I was, you know, via invitation, really think about what that, what that felt like. And that's, you know, that's part of what, what this chapter is about is really kind of extending beyond our, our natural, maybe natural is not the right word, but our uh, preconceived kind of comfort zones. Mm-hmm. So entering into a different kind of space and I think that's where you know Vicky Reynolds ideas that, that, that Gail mentioned as kind of fluid and imperfect allies where you know that I I absolutely don't consider myself a natural ally to an electricity pylon but sometimes we have to kind of place ourselves in different kinds of positions in order to be most helpful now I might have chosen to be an ally to something else or to someone else um, but this is part of the kind of mm-hmm. dilemma of research and you have transmaterial research mm. and so the research questions are kind of inviting of that um a step i guess outside of, of of a comfort zone so one of the examples that we use in the chapter is um the example of uh, everest so um if 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 a group of research we've just talked about you know as if exercise, mm-hmm. thinking about researchers in the Australian um, context. But what we did through the chapter is think about you know, what if researchers were invited to, to engage uh, with the question of, um, you know, should climbers climb Everest? Um, and if we were to do that from a transmaterial context, um, how might we extend the kinds of questions that might otherwise be asked? So the first question was, you know, how could the snow 
at the bottom of Everest um, make its experience of being transformed by climbers heard mm. in ways that climbers might be able to listen. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a different kind of way mm. of asking um, of asking a question of asking someone to put themselves in a, in a different pair of shoes or take a different kind of perspective. I mean, that's just an example. Um, but our experience of, of kind of sharing this chapter and, and, and another paper that Gail and I have written for, um, for Murmurations, um, which is a transmaterial world in uh, beyond human systems. Um, and our, our experience of sharing this chapter is that people can engage in those examples. Yeah, so the, the research questions are perhaps you know, broader and something that people can take into different contexts, sometimes kind of grounding it in a context that people may, may feel already a little familiar with. Um, it can help people to kind of, I guess, to, to create some kind of picture of what we might be talking about. So Michael White, uh, a narrative therapist who many people will, will uh, or be familiar with or can mm -hmm. read up on, wrote, uh, um, borrowed from Foucault and Derrida, uh, uh, and wrote about voices present, voices also present, not yet heard. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to think about is uh, which voices feel they have most entitlement to speak? Who's in charge of who gets invited to the party? Um, which other voices are around that somehow we haven't, we're not, we're not on the same radio frequency, so we can't hear what they're saying. So, for example, um, the, the dominant narrative around climbing Everest, and I don't know if any of uh, your listeners will have um, seen those incredible photos of mm -hmm. this dark line yeah. in yeah. the snow wiggling up to the summit of Everest, which is people standing still, not even moving, shuffling up to get to, I can't remember where it is, I want to say first base, but it'll home base, base camp. Base camp, base camp. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, and beyond, that people are queuing, not just queuing to get to Everest, but queuing all the way up Everest. And those pictures are alarming. Now, Everest is, is, is being uh, slowly destroyed. It's going to have to, at some point, be... Uh, protected in some ways. They're going to mm -hmm. have be some protected measures. But in the meantime, it's a big commercial enterprise. It's sacredness, uh, the local knowledge, uh, um, all of that has been sidelined, lost, seconded. It Maybe something gets paragraph in a travel leaflet about the history and the sacred uh, uh, attributions um, people have with the mountain. It's local meaning. But by and large, people come from afar uh, and pay a huge amount of money uh, for the privilege uh, of, I don't know if they get a certificate, but they get photographs, I guess, of mm -hmm. them at the top clutching a flag. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Them having climbed this mountain. Now, I do mm -hmm. understand that people love to climb and they love to climb, hard to climb mountains in some situations. But beyond a certain point, What's fascinating is people don't seem to be able to see the spirit of the mountain, to see the local communities, which, yes, right. of course, by now have become dependent to some degree anyway yeah. on the, uh, uh, the uh, tourism economy of climbing. Mm -hmm. yeah. But lots of other things are being 
left out of the equation. Lots of mm. other voices are not being heard. And there's a sort of an assumption that if tourism withdrew, then these poor people wouldn't know how to support themselves. They'd be des- devastated as communities. Yeah. And we don't know that's the case. And nobody's really looking into that. Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of forward thinking or forward vision. Just a, it's sort of a metaphor for what's happening on the planet. Sure. We're both systemic psychotherapists we're both trained systemically and training Mm -hmm. systemically means that we think about people in context that there are many contexts that we try and take into account when working with with people and place and history and materiality is really important so we're always trying to understand what what the influences are, what's getting in the way of people finding their own solutions to problems. And one of the difficulties with a lot of everyday, everyday systemic thinking, not specifically anything to do with systemic practice, is that people think it's to do with the individual or the individual family. There was a good example recently. There's been a lot of terrible child sexual exploitation in some cities Um Parents had were so upset and so angry that their children were allowed to carry on being sexually exploited by strangers outside of the family, because apparently a number of social workers continued to ask what was happening in the family that drove the children into the arms of dodgy, abusive strangers. Instead of understanding that maybe there was nothing wrong with what was happening in the family, that there was something about what people were doing with online contact, um, uh, with technology, with uh, offering other drug-related or uh, practical uh, resources that was attracting children, irrespective of what their family situation was. So we're not set up as a society to look at other kinds of systems. We think in terms of the local, the immediate, instead of maybe the slightly more remote, whether it's remote through technology or remote through uh, uh, more distant organizational or cultural, maybe people on the other side of the world. Um, But we tend not to think sufficiently as a society about the connection between local and global. So one of the kind of interventions that could happen out of transmaterial worlding is inviting people to connect their personal desires, their personal understanding, their immediate situation with something that might be going on quite far away. So when we, we're starting to realize that when we buy a new mobile phone, we're continuing to keep children going into mines in really impossible conditions, in very abusive conditions. We're keeping fat. We might feel enriched by having a shiny new latest state-of-the-art thing but we're keeping other families impoverished and at risk far away we'll never know who they are and now the voice of dawn dole the executive director of our partner and collaborator in this season of positivity strategist it's highly likely that you're really interested in finding out more about what the task institute offers The International Diploma in Social Construction and Professional Practice Program invites students to embark on a project of personal and professional interest. 
with individual mentoring and guidance from one of the faculty members. Visit tausinstitute.net slash diploma dash program for all the information. Yes, it's a wonderful institute with a fabulous community of associates, all of whom are guests on this season of Positivity Strategist. At the beginning there, you you gave us some sense of hope and um, aspiration of what's possible when we take on um, this lens, this way of being and doing in the world, which is really exciting. And I wondered, Leah, if you would also like to share what, you know, some of the aspirations or some of the hopes that you have based on what you're learning, what you're contributing, um, how you're helping. What does this mean for you, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, it's a a really good question. And I think um, for me, there's there's always hope that comes through connecting with other people. Um, And it's um, it's a bit like my example of the tree or the pylon. It's it's kind of, uh, it's more comfortable, it's easier to connect with people who have uh, similar ideas or similar aspirations. So, um, you know, working with Gail has, uh, has been, um, you know, a rich experience and we've bounced off each other and, you know, a lot of the kind of process of writing um, together has been, you know, trying to kind of keep one voice through the chapter, but, but the, the one voice has come from multiple um, and multi-layered conversations um, in person, over the phone, over Skype, over Zoom, over you know various different platforms, and um, there's something that is uh, kind of generative and nourishing from making those connections. But I think in in kind of putting these ideas um, um, out there, we're you know we're also inviting and um, I guess feeling you know feeling uh, optimistic about having conversations with people, whether that be in person or through the through people reading our work that to people where this feels very different, where this might not feel comfortable, where this might feel quite perturbing, or it might feel um, uh, unsettling. And and although that might be a, a, a less comfortable experience, that's also a hopeful experience because, you know, when people uh, are engaging with the material in different ways, maybe in a way that is less appreciative or maybe people who feel challenged by it or want to challenge what we're saying, then, you know, things happen. Things happen in that mm-hmm. uh, exchange. So I think, you know, part of, part of the hope that I have is that people will engage appreciatively or otherwise with, um, with the ideas in the chat. Factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that that you know people will you know potentially be moved to um, respond to it you know researchers who are actively engaged in research right now or people who are uh, considering that or people whose everyday practice might not be um, as a you know a researcher with a capital R but who people who are researching evaluating responding to their own practices and this might offer a new lens for them there's hopefulness within what what is a you know an unsettling and troubling uh picture i guess you know this is a kind of situation where that we don't want to gloss over the the seriousness um you know we don't want to be too hopeful because if we're too hope, hopeful we might be uh, complacent 
So um, I would love to pivot a little bit and circle back to both of you loving walking and being in nature and to your as if examples of being trees. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. So I'm going to invite each one of you to say one of the things that that imagine that you are taking a long walk in nature and you're in the natural world. And if you were to ask the natural world, who wants to speak through me, what might each one of you come up with? Hmm. I think the, the first thing that occurs to me is that there isn't such a thing as the natural world anymore. It's a false distinction. The trees are infected by plastic particles um, if they're beyond a certain age. And in a way, we need to stop seeing ourselves as separate from the natural world. We need to see ourselves one, as part of it, and also see the built environment, see cityscapes as part of the natural world, whether they're standing on where forests used to be or whether there are trees struggling to survive in them. Because um, we're using trees now to bring back oxygen and fresh air and to cleanse our environment in, in cities. But there's something that's been written a lot in, about the post-human era meaning we're not just humans anymore. We are our technology. We are nature. Nature is technology. Technology is human. There's a real mix-up going on. Everything's changed. We are our phones. Our phones are us. And others may know who, where, where we are and what we're doing, even though we don't know where they are. And we find our way through nature using our phones. I use my phone to help me guide my way through the landscape. So I think... I think we need to, in a sense, not, th what's the word, thingify nature, you know, like mm. put it in a preserve or a reserve or a national park, which is a protective strategy, as though then we don't have to, the implication is we don't have to protect what exists outside of that mm. ring-fenced. Yeah. What nature. comes to mind, the word that comes to mind is this entanglement, mm -hmm. you know, that we're all entangled. So um, thank you for that perspective. That's really been so eye-opening for me and I see that. So looking at concrete buildings made of sand, right, and the paper towels we used are made, you know, the trees have contributed. So for those, those things, I don't know what to call them now, <laughs> um, what might, in their natural state or in their original state, what might they have said to us as humans? Let me reverse the question. Is that possible to answer? Well, Leah and I can come up with some examples. So we use the example of the glacier um, as well somewhere. Um, that if glaciers could speak, they might at their simplest say, I'm, I'm going, I'm melting, bye-bye. They might just say goodbye. They might say, I can't hold you anymore, penguins. They might, uh, um, the, the reindeer, lichen or moss up in mm -hmm. the mountains of Norway and Sweden and uh, Finland might be saying, um, uh, we can't carry on feeding you, reindeer. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I'm, I'm thinking, are we getting, uh, I feel like we're kind of getting caught in a linguistic trap and, you know, the, the, the world is talking to us. The, you know, the, the message is out, is there. You know, it's, it, um, uh, things are falling apart, things are not going well, um, things are messed up. Um, and that, that might not, it might not be packaged in a, in a sentence, it might not be packaged in, a, in, in, in that form of communication in a human form of communication, but the, the messages are there. I think, I think it's less about, um, you know, uh, what is the world trying to say mm. as more as how are we going to listen? Yeah. Thank you. So I wonder as we close out and let me say that, um, for those of you who are listening, I'll be sharing resources to much of the work or some of the work that both Leah and Gail have contributed to the world links to murmurations, links to some of their papers. And so that will be found on positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. And if you scroll through, you'll find reference to um, this particular episode. I'm inviting you both. Is there something else that you would like to say by way of closing out this conversation today? I think transmaterial welding is a practice of hope. In a very honest way, it's uh, recognizing that the world is in a terrible state. We can't thingify things. We can't separate ourselves out from the world. But at the same time, we have to take on board that we have responsibilities and choices. Um, And from a social constructionist point of view in particular, we have to think, who's involved in this conversation Who am I overlooking? What am I overlooking? Mm -hmm. What previous historical knowledges could usefully be heard here? And what do I need to do to change my ways of listening and finding out and knowing um, to help resolve some of the everyday difficulties or the long-term struggles of the planet and its inhabitants, its many transmaterial inhabitants? I guess I'd like to say that I, I kind of um, experienced transmaterial world and as a, uh, yes, a message of hope and also a message of responsibility and accountability. Um, but that, that responsibility and accountability is not necessarily an individual one, although you know each individual needs to make their own choices and decisions in relation to that. And every individual can make a difference, but there's something about a kind of collective, uh, collective accountability, collective um responsibility that uh, and you know I can't think of uh, many examples of when we're not I mean there are some but not not an awful lot of when we're not better together um and I think the, the we um is is not just a human we mm-hmm. yeah and you in that very um succinct way we're focused today on environmental issues right and planet and climate change and so on but there are so many other things that we could have unpacked and got in the direction you know whether we're talking about different societal we're talking about um gender issues we're talking about um different you know the disappearing of different cultures so there's just it's so rich and I think this is the most exciting thing. When I was reading the chapter in the book and poking around, trying to understand more, I got incredibly excited about it. So um, I'm just hoping that people who are listening to this will have that same experience and want to go digging more. 
It's a good form of digging. It's a <laughs> the transmaterial welding is there are a lot of digging tools in that in this chapter for potential researchers, for actual researchers. In effect, it's an invitation to experiment in a with with a social conscience. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 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 Just focusing on the the application and the practicing of it. I think that's so helpful. You know, students are often looking for tools. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I tend to steer away from tools, but, you know, that's, well, that's another tool, construct, right? Ro- Roseanne Leppington mm-hmm. wrote a brilliant paper in 1991. She, she says it's better within a social constructionist framework to talk, talk about discursive practices. And discursive practices are a form of action and activism. Um, so these these tools, if you like, these kinds of questions that we're in offering um, that come from uh, the systemic stable of interventive questions, hypothetical questions, uh, imagining questions, um, they are very engaging, they're very accessible, and they're really good for researchers, really good for social constructionist researchers to think, how, how can I ask questions that bring forth maybe multiple perspectives, different voices, and not just try to look for single truths, because that's the, one of the biggest problems for a lot of uh, researchers who are interested in social constructionist research, is that they have to find the resilience to withstand some of the dominant discourses that suggest yeah. they should be looking for a single truth that they could pull out of a situation where a social construction really is happy to disrupt and problematize and say, there are you know, many, many different perspectives, many different stories to tell. And, and, and it's not just a practical set of tools, social construction, it's an, an ethical way of being, to, to be yeah. asking and listening in different kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I d- that's really helpful. And I really like the idea of just staying in inquiry. Yeah. Keep asking those questions. As a way of life. Yeah, as a way of life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. way of living. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Gail. Thank you, Leah, for being guest today. Yeah, thank you, Robin. You've been listening to two Taos associate authors who are at the leading edge innovating social constructionist practice with transmaterial worlding. Please visit positivitystrategist.com slash podcast where you'll find out more and be sure to listen to our next episode in this exciting season. My guest will be Dr. Janet Newbery and she'll be talking to me from British Columbia in Canada where she lives and the subject we'll be talking about is her research and practice through the lens of social construction into community development. As always, a huge thank you to all of you who are listening and also to the Taos Institute who is making this season possible.